All right, what up, Flatirons? Good, good. What's the matter with you? you? Nervous about the game today? Come on, it's a 28-point spread. I think we'll be all right. I think we'll be all right. Hey, a um, few announcements for you guys real quick. First of all, to my right, there's this guy trying to sneak off stage in a Me Too t-shirt. His name's Matt Johnson. He just joined our staff to be on our worship team. Welcome him here. He's a good dude. You guys are going to get to know him uh, in the next few weeks and months to come. He's going to primarily be leading worship at our West Campus when we open that. We're going to be telling you that date here really, really uh, soon. Uh, that leads into this next announcement. These guys wanted me to remind you that we have worship team auditions coming up. Those are going to be October 29th and 30th, November 5th and 6th. Those are specifically for the West Campus. So if you're interested in being a part of that, you need to get your application in as soon as possible, whether you play an instrument, um, sing, interpretive dance, whatever that is. We like to watch that stuff. So if you send it in, that's awesome. Um, send that in. I think by the 14th is the deadline, which is like tomorrow or the next day or something like that. So make sure you do that. All right. Uh, the other thing is this. We've got to talk about candy. Y'all. I'm going to employ all my abilities to lay guilt on you um, over candy. Okay. Because we have 8 million kids coming to Fall Fest very, very soon. And we have 30% of the candy that we need in order to keep them happy. And if you've ever seen kids who are unruly about candy, we don't want that to happen. They will burn this place to the ground. All right. We have to have enough candy for these kids. So we need you guys to be bringing in candy over the next few days and weeks before leading up to fall fest, putting them in those bins out there in the lobby so that they don't take over um, the entire church and burn it to the ground. All right. We need to make sure that doesn't happen. The other thing is this, as we say, it seems like every two months we have to come to you and go, Hey, you guys are having lots of kids and we don't have enough leaders to take care of them. And I've done my part y'all. I had a procedure. All right. So major (laughs) surgery. Okay. Um, you guys, some of you have not done that yet. And so we need more leaders in kids ministry. And so, um, we need you on October 19th. You can come in and be trained to work in our kids ministry or October 20th at the 1045 service. Um, it's the best kids ministry on the planet. You need to be a part of it. All right. Hey, we're, uh, we're going to continue in this series called neighborhood watch that we kicked off last week. And as I've been kind of preparing for this series, I've been reading this book and I'll recommend it to you here in a little bit, but this book's been kind of wrecking me. And so if you want to read it too, it can wreck you too. But in this book, the author, um, tells this uh, kind of discloses some things about himself. And he talks about how many times in his life he's lost his keys. And as I'm reading this story, I'm going, man, I think he's talking about me because this is how it goes down every time I lose my keys. Does, does anybody else ever lose their keys a lot? Like this is just something that happens to you all the time. I don't know how it works for you. When I lose my keys, what I immediately start doing is getting angry, uh, stomping around the house, huffing and puffing. And then I immediately start to blame everybody in my household. All right. Starting with my wife. All right. Because what better things does she have to do than to relocate my things just to make me angry. Right. Um, and then I work all the way down. I have four children. So I have plenty of people to blame and the baby's not exempt. I can tell he's very, very vindictive. I can see it in his eyes. All right. I've got a dog. I can blame all of them. And that's what I do. I just slowly methodically make my way through the whole house, make everybody cry, blame everybody. And many times as I have done this, I, I then discovered my keys in my pocket. I don't know if that's ever happened to you, but in that moment, what I do is sneak out of the house as quickly as possible without saying anything. Or maybe that hadn't been keys for you. Maybe it's been sunglasses. Anybody ever searched frantically for your sunglasses only to find them where? On your head. Isn't that horrible? That's a horrible, horrible moment. And we're learning about this thing that we talked about last week. And I think you're a lot like me and I'm a lot like you that most of us, we are frantically working and searching for something that we've already got. And it's called grace. 
It's called grace. And we kick this off by talking about this story, this famous story found in the Bible that Jesus tells called the Good Samaritan. And before Jesus ever even tells this famous story, he has this interaction with this lawyer, this guy who initiates this conversation with Jesus, who he was betting his life on this idea that a lot of us are betting our lives on, which is simply this. If I work hard enough, if I try to be good enough for God, then that will turn out to be a good thing for me and he'll welcome me into heaven one day. And what we called that last week was simply Deal number one, two deals on the table. Deal number one is following the law, following the rules, counting on our relative goodness. And if God will just keep or treat us fairly, trying hard should be enough for God. And that's the way many of us are living our lives. But last week we talked about how deal number one is a really, really bad deal that no one can live up to God's standards, which is why so many of us are exhausted right? Because we're chasing something that we can never attain. We're trying to jump over something we can never get over. It's too high of a bar. See, the Bible outlines for us, we talked about this last week, the Bible outlines for us, if we want to stand in front of God and stomp our feet and demand that he treat us fairly, this is what, the way that'll go down. Romans three twenty three: for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Romans six twenty three: and the wages of sin is death. You want fair? That's fair. It's a bad deal. But it's really interesting. Uh, Last week, I just read you Romans 3.23. I didn't go on to Romans 3.24, which is the way it's actually meant to be kind of composed. Look look at this. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a, what? Give me the word. Gift through the redemption that's in Christ Jesus. And I didn't even read all of Romans 3.23. I just read the first couple words of it. There's actually more words in that verse. Romans 6.23 says this, for the wages of sin is death, but the what? Free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. That's a better deal. Grace is a better deal. It's a free gift, no strings attached. Um, one of the best definitions of grace I've ever seen was in this book. Uh, it's called One Way Love. It's written by a guy, this is a great name. His name is Tulian Tavichian. I think I'm saying his name correctly. That's a mouthful. He's actually one of uh, Billy Graham's grandchildren. And he describes grace this way. Grace is unconditional acceptance given to an undeserving person by an unobligated giver. It's one way love. And I marked that up, highlighted that, circled that, memorized that. That's, that's beautiful. I mean, uh, p- p- take that apart. Unconditional acceptance. That means that grace doesn't come with qualifiers or strings attached. God doesn't go, you can have it if, and fill in the blank with all the things that we think he says to us. You can have it if you're, if you're good. You can have it if you go to church most days. He, he doesn't say any of that. It's unconditional. It's not qualified. It's no strings attached, given to an undeserving person. And that's the only part of the definition I would change a little bit. I would tweak or correct a little bit. I don't think we're just undeserving. I actually think we're ill-deserving. It's not that we just don't deserve the grace that we get. We deserve something and what we deserve is ill. We deserve punishment. We deserve condemnation, but yet we're given grace and that's given to us by an unobligated giver. Check this. God is not obligated to give you or me grace. He's, he's not. He's the creator. We're the creation. He's not obligated to us. I got an email from a friend after last week's sermon and it said this, Scott, it just seems too easy. My entire life, I've been programmed to believe that nothing good that's, that, that, that's good in life comes for free. And you're telling me that this grace thing is free. I just can't get my mind and heart around it. And I emailed back simply these words, me too. 
And I'm sure he was like, well, thanks a lot. I was hoping for some pastoral advice, you know, good job, Pastor Scott, you know, but I get it. That's not the way the world works. That's not the way that we operate. That's not what we're used to. We're not used to one way love. We're used to, I scratch your back, you scratch mine, quid pro quo. I'm obligated to you because you did something for me. We're used to two way love. And if we're really, really honest, we like it that way because when we operate that way, that allows us to keep some measure of control. Which means that we can withhold things and we can determine things and we can decide things and we like it that way. Tullian goes on to say in his book, he says this, The news of God's inexhaustible grace has never been more urgent because the world has never been more exhausted. Anybody agree with that? In our culture, where success equals life and failure equals death, people spend their lives trying to secure their own meaning, worth, and significance. And as a result, our culture is exhausted emotionally, physically, relationally, spiritually. Real life is long on law and short on grace. The demands never stop. The failures pile up. The fear sets in. Life requires requires many things from us, a successful career, a stable marriage, well-behaved and emotionally adjusted children, a good reputation and a certain quality of life. We do our best. We do better, do more and do now. We live with long lists of things to accomplish, people to please and situations to manage. Anyone living inside the stress, strain and uncertainty of daily life knows from instinct and hard experience that the weight of this life is heavy and we all need some relief. And I just... That describes my life. I think it describes a lot of our lives. But instead of finding relief in Christ, we seek to take control ourselves, don't we? And what we're going to do today as we dive back into this famous story, the Good Samaritan, is we're going to look at a control freak. What I mean by that is we're going to look in the mirror <laughs> and we're going to, we're going to see what happens when this guy's uh, sense of control gets threatened and he's going to do the exact same things that you and I do. So if you've got your Bibles, pull them out again, Luke chapter 10, beginning in verse 25, pull out your programs. It'll be in there and we'll kind of review a little bit of this and then we'll look at one new verse this week. So check this out. And behold, a lawyer stood up to put him, Jesus, to the test saying, teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? So again, his motivation is he already thinks he knows the answers. He's trying to trap Jesus. He's trying to put Jesus to the test. He's trying to control the situation. And Jesus lets this control freak do what he does best. Watch this. Verse 26. He said to him, what's written in the law? How do you read it? And the man answered, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and your neighbor as yourself. Jesus said to him, you've answered correctly. Do this and you'll live. We talked about this last week. Deal number one. If that's what you want to take, you've got the answer, right? The only thing is you have to do it perfectly. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, all your mind, all your strength, perfectly all the time without fail. And love your neighbor as yourself perfectly all the time without fail every day of your life. And it's at this point that the man gets a little shaky. He he senses that as he's tried to trap Jesus, that perhaps it's Jesus who has backed him into a corner. And so he responds the way all of us would respond. Look at this, verse 29. But he, desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus... And who is my neighbor? (laughs) You see what he's doing? Justify himself is an interesting phrase. The word justify means literally to declare righteous. It's a judicial term. The person who gets to do that is the one who sits in the seat of the judge. The judge gets to look at the person who stands accused and say, no, that person is innocent or that person is guilty. And if you were here last week, you know that what God, the judge, is looking for out of me and in me and the same out of you and in you is precisely this, righteousness. You remember what righteousness means? Being, thinking, feeling, and doing the right thing as God defines it all the time. Anyone pass that test? No. 
What we learned last week is, listen, none of us has a righteousness of our own. We can't produce it. We can't work for it. We can't muster it. We can't build it. But fortunately, what we have is someone who's cut us a better deal. He's put a better deal on the table. It goes like this, 2 Corinthians 5, 21. For our sake, he, God the Father, made him, Jesus the Son, who knew no sin to be sin, so that in him we might become, what? The righteousness of God. That's a much better deal. But this attorney, this lawyer on this day, he doesn't know about that deal yet. And so he does what I do all the time. He seeks to justify himself. He wants to declare himself righteous. He wants to prove that he is in fact good enough. And by doing this, don't miss what he's doing. He's actually putting himself in God's seat. The judge is the one who justifies. That would be God. But this guy wants to take God's place. Out of his desperate need for control, he puts himself on the throne in the seat of judgment. He's trying to make sure that he still comes off looking good and feeling good about himself. But here's the thing deep down inside what this guy's dealing with right now. I I don't think I'm wrong on this is this dreadful sense that he is in fact, not okay. Anybody else ever lived with that sense? This dreadful sense that in fact, you are not okay, that you are not enough, that you are in fact broken. You see the law is really good at pointing out that we're not okay. The law is really good at pointing out that we are messed up. In fact, that's what the purpose of the law is. And we need that. That's a very good thing. We need to know just how messed up we are. That's exactly what Jesus wants this guy to feel in this moment. He wants him to know he's not okay. He wants him to know that he can't live up to the own, the standard that he himself has articulated is God's standard. He needs you maybe to know today that you are not okay. Despite what the world wants to tell you with all our self-help affirmation, you're perfect just the way you are. No, you're not. You know that. I know that. I'm not perfect just the way I am. I'm, I'm in desperate need of fixing. And fixing me and fixing you is exactly where the law stops. It cannot do that. The law can't fix us. But this guy's holding out hope that it can If he can just follow enough rules that that's going to be enough. See, the law can point out our shortcomings, but it cannot produce righteousness. Say it this way. Simply telling people what they need to do doesn't have the power to make them want to do it. Every parent in the room knows this. I can tell my kids, and I do, just like you do, until I'm blue in the face. Say thank you, say thank you, say thank you, say thank you, say thank you. Go tell them thank you. How many of us do this as parents, all right? That's great. I think we should do that. That's called laying down the law. That's creating rules. They should follow them, all that kind of stuff. You know what I cannot do? I cannot make my kids feel gratitude. I can't. I can't make them genuinely express gratitude. I can force them to fake it, right? Go tell her thank you. Thank you. Right? (laughs) See, I can't force it, but that's what the law, that's where the law stops short. You you know what leads to genuine gratitude? Relationship and experience. So I'll give you an example. So a couple weeks ago, I take Eli with me um, to see our friend fight up up in Loveland. And so Eli got to stay up late, eat junk food, and watch fighting. That is the holy trinity for Eli. All right? Like it does not get any better than that. And so... It's about midnight. We're driving, driving home from Loveland. And as he's about to fall asleep in the back seat, he just says, Hey daddy, thanks so much for taking me to watch our friend Vinny fight. I love you so much. And then he goes to sleep. Oh yeah. We all go, Oh, because I can't force that moment. That was born out of relationship and experience, right? The law cannot create that. I could have said till I was blue in the face, tell your daddy, thank you for taking you out and doing such nice things for you. And I could not have created gratitude in him. The law can't do it. The law only points out how desperately we fall short of God's standards. 
This guy, though, this attorney on this day, he thinks he can make a case for it. He thinks he can make a case for why in each moment that he hasn't lived up to those standards. He thinks he can make a case for why those those moments were perfectly justifiable. Right. And based on his question, it seems that he thinks he's doing all right in the love God category. The vertical part of this, but he seems to feel a little shaky about the horizontal part of this, the love your neighbor as yourself part, because what does he ask Jesus? He says, um, and who is my neighbor exactly, Jesus? Why does he ask that question? He asks the question because he knows there are certain people out there that he cannot and he will not love, but he feels like he can justify those things, those actions. He feels like he has good reasons and he wants Jesus to look back at him and go, it's okay. That doesn't count against you. That's perfectly justified. So what Jesus goes on and does, instead of saying, oh yeah, that's fine, is he tells this really offensive story about a guy who no good Jewish person would ever love or ever help, who does a loving thing for someone. And what what he wants this attorney to feel is this understanding that if the tables were turned and it was a Samaritan in the ditch on the side of the road dying, there's no way you would ever help him. In other words, there is a point at which if you want to take deal number one, follow all the rules perfectly, There is a point at which you will tap out, you will give up, and you will say, I won't do that. Right? There is a point at which, for all of us, where our obedience to Jesus stops and our disobedience begins, and we pray this prayer. Dear Jesus, no, in your name I pray, amen. Right? And all he's trying to do is to point this out to this guy. And in that moment, when your obedience stops and your disobedience starts, if you've been counting on deal number one, what are you going to be left with? The answer is this, and it's really scary. The condemnation that you were so desperately trying to avoid in the first place by working so hard to justify yourself. So Jesus has to push hard to, to expose in this guy what he's doing. Yet this guy, man, he desperately is trying to hang on to the delusion that he is in control of his destiny. He's the master of his fate, that he can control all the outcomes in this life and in the next. But this guy knows deep down. There's certain people out there, man, there's no way I'm going to love them. And he wants to be told it's okay. And we do this all the time. We ask the same questions of Jesus all the time. It happens in the Bible over and over again. One time, uh, the most famous disciple probably of Jesus's was this guy named Peter. And Jesus is standing around one day and he's teaching about forgiveness. And Peter hears him teaching about forgiveness. And Peter raises his hand and goes, oh, Jesus, I have a question. That's my Peter voice. All right. Uh, how many times exactly do we have to forgive somebody? Now, don't miss this. Peter's not asking the question because he's so interested in being such an exceptionally forgiving person. Peter's asking the question because he wants to know when it's okay for him to stop forgiving people and still be okay and still feel okay and feel totally justified in doing that. It's the same reason this attorney asked the question, and who is my neighbor? Not because he's interested in being so neighborly to everybody, but because he's interested in knowing when is it okay for me to stop being a neighbor to somebody, and he still wants to feel okay about it and feel like a good person. Listen to what I'm about to say. Jesus wants to rip our obsession with feeling like a good person right out of our hands because it's a bad deal. It's a bad deal trying to be good enough for God. That's exhausting and it's an impossible way to live. Jesus, I think he loves this attorney. I think he loves this lawyer. I think he, I think he really, really wants to expose this in him so that he can point him out to a better deal called grace. The way I frame it up in my mind is simply this. Trying to be good enough on your own equals exhaustion. Knowing you are good enough by grace equals rest. 
But we don't like grace. If we're honest, you know why? You know why we don't like this idea of grace, this reality of grace? You know why we don't like it? Because it takes two things away from us that we really, really want. Control and glory. In other words, we don't get to dictate the terms of grace. That's all on God and and glory because, listen, we didn't earn it. Grace, by definition, is something that is given to us as a gift. So what glory could I gain from from grace? Because it was just given to me based on nothing I did for myself. I didn't earn it. Our glory and grace don't go together and we don't like that. Give you an example. When's the last time that you opened a gift on Christmas beside the tree and everybody around started applauding for your efforts? You didn't do anything. Someone gave you something. All right. You don't get the glory for that. That would be ridiculous. Remember how Romans puts it for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Who are we justified by God? How are we justified through his grace? What is that? It's a gift. We cannot justify ourselves, but we're just like this guy. Oh, how we try. And yet the Bible just keeps reminding us, you can't do it. You can't do it. You can't do it. Romans 3.28 says this, for we hold that one is justified by faith apart from works of the law. You want to be justified? It's got nothing to do with your works. It's got nothing to do with you being a good person. See, if you believe that Jesus is God's son and that he died on the cross for you to remove your sin and your shame and your guilt, and instead he gave you his righteousness, he gave you that as a gift. So let's do it this way. All right. So. God sends his one and only son to this earth. He sends, sends his son to this earth, to his creation. And we, the created, brutally murder Jesus, God's one and only son. I mean, the cross was the, the most fiendish instrument of death that the world had ever devised at that point in human history. I'm not sure we've topped it, to be quite honest with you. That's what we did to God's son. And he sent his son on our behalf for us. Okay, so that, that's what God did. Okay. What amount of good things or what specific good thing do you think you could do that you could then go present before God that he would look at that and go, that about evens the score. You going to church and helping little old ladies across the street and just trying to be a good person. That's pretty much the equivalent of my son's brutal death on the cross. What would that be? See, but we constantly are trying to justify ourselves by the good things that we do. Some of us, man, we are living a life of justification by going to church. And man, some of you need to find a better hobby. That's a lame hobby. Going to church as a hobby. I meet people all the time. I go to this church on Wednesday, this one on Thursday, Saturday and Sunday. And then I'm man, go, go to the mountains. It's beautiful out there. Learn to ride a bike, ride a horse, something. Going to church is a lame hobby. If you view God through the lens of he's like a teacher in heaven taking roll call at church. And I grew up in the South. I watched it every week, man. This is the way it worked. You go to church so you can make a deposit in your account so that one day the scales tip in your favor. And God is manipulated into having to let you into heaven because you went to church so often. Going to church is a lame hobby. Find a better one. And I'm all for going to church when it's to worship the God who makes you new. To make you clean and makes you righteous and forgives your sin and shame. That, that's worth doing. But you don't do it to earn something. You do it because you have something. Romans 8.1 says it this way. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. I believe that. But I may not live as if I'm under condemnation. But I certainly live as if I'm under obligation. Anybody else? Am I the only one? Because I still desperately hang on to this. 
this idea that nothing good in life comes for free, right? Last week I alluded to it when I said I tend to live my life knowing that I was saved by grace based on nothing I did for myself, but now it's my turn. I have to pay God back with the rest of my life trying to earn what I've already been given. And some of you, man, you're just like me because these are all the objections that come up in my, my mind. Well, Scott, what are you saying? Are you saying this just doesn't matter? Doing good things doesn't matter? Taking your faith seriously doesn't matter? Being obedient to Jesus doesn't matter? That's not what I'm saying. All of that matters. All of that's very, very important. I'll let uh, Tuli and Tavichin say it this way, all right? He says, I heartily amen, which is just a religious way of saying I agree with. Cut him a break. He's Billy Graham's grandson. I heartily amen the desire to take faith seriously and demonstrate before the watching world a willingness to sacrificially serve our neighbors rather than ourselves. I agree with all that stuff is what he's saying. Me too. The unintended consequence of this push, however, is that if we're not careful, we can give the impression that Christianity is first and foremost about the sacrifice we make for Jesus rather than the sacrifice Jesus made for us. Our performance for him rather than his performance for us. Our obedience to him rather than his obedience for us. Watch. The hub of Christianity is not do something for Jesus. It's Jesus has done everything for you. I fear too many people, both inside and outside the church, have heard this plea for intensified devotion and concluded the foundation of Christian faith is our love for God instead of God's love for us. That indicted me to my core. And man, that's the way that I live my life, if I'm honest. My words, I would just say it this way. I live as if the grace that saved me isn't the same grace that sustains me, even though the Bible teaches me every time I open it that that's not true. The same grace that saved you is the grace that empowers you to do anything good. It's the same grace that that animates your entire life. Yet I'm running around the house searching for something I already have. The keys are in my pocket. The sunglasses are on my forehead. I'm working hard for something I already have. Working hard for something's great. I think that's awesome unless you already have it and it was given to you. Working really hard for something that was already given to you, that's a waste of time. And I think a lot of us are wasting our time. And there are all kinds of ways we try to justify ourselves when we feel like we have to be good to keep and protect God's approval of us. When we feel like grace was given to us as a free gift, but now we have to make it up to God. All kinds of destructive actions flow from that. I'll give you a simple mentality that creates actions in my life that flow from that idea. It's simply this. My natural tendency to work for God's approval leads me to think too highly of myself and to think less of others. See, I don't know how you're wired. I know how I'm wired. I'm wired to earn. I'm wired to prove. I'm I'm wired to to work, to grind. It's why I've run marathons. It's why I've climbed mountains. It's why I lift weights and train jujitsu. It's why I get up early in the morning on Monday after preaching the whole weekend and I'll be the first one into the office. And if I'm honest with you in that moment, that's when if I let that thought process go, certain things will creep into my mind and into my heart. And it's this little internal conversation with myself that goes like this. Wow, Scott. Scott, you work really, really hard. Look at you. You're the one who stood on the stage preaching his guts out all weekend and you're the first one into the office and you've already worked out. You know what that's called? Pride and arrogance. And if I let it keep going, you know what happens next? I start wondering where everybody else is. Why does everybody else not have the same work ethic as me? And I start to, I start to judge everybody around me. Somebody rolls in at the late hour of 7.15 a.m. and I'm like, "Mm, half the day's gone, bro. Where you been? God forbid somebody come in at nine, you know, it's like, oh, fire them, you know, get rid of them, get rid of them right now. See, but that's what, that's what that thought process. If I have to earn 
leads to is I think too highly of myself and I think less of others. And I'm not the only one. I'll give you a couple examples in the Bible. I, I referred to this story uh, last week, just, just briefly. It's this moment found in Matthew chapter 19, flip over there. If you want to, it's in your program too, where this rich young guy comes up to Jesus and he asks basically the same question that this lawyer in the story of the good Samaritan asks Jesus, watch how this plays out. Matthew 19 verse 16. And behold, a man came up to him, Jesus saying, teacher, what good, good deed must I do to have eternal life? Same question. And he said to him, why do you ask me about what is good? There's only one who is good. If you would enter life, keep the commandments. <laughs> and Jesus is playing this game. He said to him, which ones? <laughs> and Jesus said, you shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You, sh- you shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness. Honor your father and mother and you shall love your neighbor as yourself. The young man said to him, watch this. All these I have kept. What do I still lack? What am I missing? And I think we read the Bible too fast. This is the part where we should stop and go, seriously, dude? All of these you have kept? I mean, Jesus is just throwing out random commandments, not even in order. Okay, and it says this is a a young guy. So I'll give him murder and adultery. I'll give you those. You haven't offed anybody. You haven't cheated on your wife. Maybe you're not even married yet. I'll give you those. I believe you. I won't even argue with you about those. But Jesus goes on and says, "You, you should not steal. You've never stolen anything in your whole life? Ever? I have a four-year-old who's a kleptomaniac, all right? He's got our stuff stashed all over the house. He does. He's got it absolutely everywhere. And you're saying that never in your whole life have you stolen anything from anybody? I'm not sure I believe you on this one, bro. And then Jesus goes on and goes, you shall not bear false witness. So here's what you're saying, dude. You've never spoken about person A to person B and misrepresented person A to person B. You've never said anything false about another human being to somebody else in your entire life. Seriously? Seriously. And then Jesus goes and honor your father and mother. You've not done that, bro. There is no way. No child has ever done that because they're all wicked and depraved. All right. They, they really, really are. Yeah. Only people who get mad at me when I say that are people without children. All the people with children are like, yes, they are. And then Jesus just drops the bomb. He says, love your neighbor as yourself. The same thing he says is being dealt with in the story of the Good Samaritan. And this guy has the audacity to go, check, 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 check. What else am I missing? <laughs> I've done all of that. And here's the thing. So we might be tempted to think this guy's just a blatant liar, man. Like he is a liar to the core. I actually don't think he is. You know what I think the issue is with this guy? It's the same issue that most religious people and legalistic people actually have. He actually has too low of a view of God's standards. See, we have a tendency to think religious people, legalistic people, they have such an elevated view of God's standards. No, they don't. They have a too low view of God's standards. How do you know that, Scott? Because they think they can live up to them. You can't think you can live up to God's standards and have a high view of God's standards. Jesus is the one who came along and said, I'm not trying to lower your view of the law. No, no, no. I'm actually trying to elevate your view of the law. Jesus is the one who came along and said, oh yeah, you can check all the boxes on the outside. You can make yourself look good on the outside. What you cannot fake are the internal motivations of your heart. You can look great on the outside and on the inside be rotten to the core. So here's the deal. If I were Jesus standing in front of this just arrogant, rich young dude who just had the audacity to say that he's kept all those since his youth, what more does he lack? I would blow him up. I don't mean metaphorically, figuratively, I mean, creator of the universe powers like boom in front of everybody. That's what I would do. And then I would look at everybody and go, "Uh uh-huh. 
Uh-huh. Anybody else want to test me today? You know, that's what, that's what I would do. But Jesus is, Jesus is not like me. All right. I'm not like him. Look what Jesus says in verse 21. So the dude says, what I've kept them all. What else do I lack? Verse 21. Jesus said to him, if you would be perfect, go sell what you possess and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven and come follow me. Notice how he frames it up. If you would be perfect, in other words, if you're going to take deal number one, if you're going to chase perfection, let me just set the bar where it actually is and let me point out the place at which your obedience will stop and your disobedience will begin. Let me expose the fact that you cannot live up to the task of perfectly keeping the law. And watch how this plays out. It's really, it's really, really sad. Look at verse 22. When the young man heard this, he went away sorrowful for he had great possessions And Jesus said to his disciples, truly, I say to you, only with difficulty will a rich person enter the kingdom of heaven. Again, I tell you, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle. Hang on to that picture in your brain. Okay. than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. And again, this is one of those things I've heard taught incorrectly my entire life. I don't know why this is, but it's true of all of us preachers. We have this tendency and this proclivity when Jesus says something really, really hard. We want to make it softer than what Jesus ever wanted it to be. We want to make excuses for Jesus and apologize for Jesus, but Jesus meant for that to sound impossible. But yet I've heard so many preachers, some of you've heard this, I've had people come up to me in the lobby and go, I've heard that my whole life. Have you not heard this? Some of you have, all right, if you're growing up going to church. To justify what Jesus just said about a camel going through an eye of a needle and rich people getting into heaven and how impossible that sounds... People, preachers will actually say, okay, so what Jesus actually meant was there was this gate that led into Jerusalem and they called it the eye of the needle and it was kind of short. And so people who were traveling on camels couldn't fit underneath the gate. And so they'd have to hop off their camel and the camel would have to get down on its knees and shuffle through the gate. And then they'd have to climb, walk through and then get back on their camel. That is absurd on so many levels. I mean, first of all, it's factually not true. Okay. No such gate existed. That would be ridiculous to even do on a day that people traveled so much on camels. It'd be like us having a drive through window with a three and a half foot clearance. That doesn't make any sense. Not to mention the fact that camels knees bend in opposite directions. They can't shuffle through anything. They'll fall over and die right in front of you. All right. No, the point of Jesus's illustration was this is impossible. That was the point. Well, Scott, what makes you the expert? How do you know? I'm not. Just read what Jesus says next. When the disciples heard this, they were greatly astonished, saying, well, then who then can be saved? But Jesus looked at them and said, with man, this is what? Impossible. But with God, what? All things are possible. That's precisely the point of Jesus's illustration. If you want to work your way into heaven, good luck. You might as well try to squeeze a camel through the eye of a needle. But if you want to put your faith and trust in God, guess what? All things are possible. All things are, are possible, man. And that's where, that's where everybody should just be quiet and listen to Jesus. And yet Peter speaks up, (laughs) Peter speaks up. And even as Jesus has just said on your own effort, based on your own rule following attempts, you will never get in. Peter's just like me, man. He wants to take back control. He wants to take that away from God and put the, the control squarely on his own shoulders. He wants to participate in his own salvation so badly. He wants to accomplish something of merit so badly. Look at what he says, verse 27. Then Peter said in reply, see, we've left everything, Jesus, and followed you. What then will we have? He's not subtle. He's not good at being subtle, right? This guy's just walked away from Jesus, this rich young guy, and he won't give up his money. And 
Peter is thinking the same way that we all think. This is classic if-then thinking. Well, if we've walked away from everything for you, Jesus, then what do we receive? This is the way we always think. If I do this, then God has to do this in return, which puts me in control and actually makes me the guy pulling the strings and God's the puppet, right? Peter's just watched this interaction and he's so conditioned to think this way that he says, hey, we gave up all our stuff, Jesus, so what do we get? And again, if I'm Jesus, I would look at Peter and go, you've got to be kidding me. You've left everything. Peter, you're the worst fisherman on the face of the earth. Every time we ever see Peter in the Bible fishing, guess what he's not doing? Catching fish. Until Jesus shows up, does a miracle for him on his behalf, and then he has all kinds of fish. If I'm Jesus, I go, you've got to be kidding me. This guy's actually done something well. Peter, you left a really bad job that you were really bad at. You left everything for me. whoop de doo You know, I mean, that's what I would say. Jesus said to them, not what Scott would say, Jesus said to them, truly, I say to you in the new world, that's heaven, when the son of man will sit on his glorious throne, you who have followed me, you'll, you'll also sit on 12 thrones, judging the 12 tribes of Israel and everyone who's left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or children or lands for my name's sake will receive a hundredfold and will inherit. There's that word again, eternal life. Watch this. But many who are first will be last and the last first. Sum it up. Uh, Jesus says to Peter, Peter, you're going you're gonna to inherit more than you could ever ask or imagine. You have no clue what you're talking about. Just settle down. Just chill. And then he says this really odd thing. The first will be last. The last will be first. And Peter's left scratching his head. And so are we. Because Jesus knows Peter and he knows us really well. And he knows how desperately we want to be recognized for our sacrifice. And we want to be a participant in our own salvation Especially compared to people like this rich young guy who just wouldn't give up his money. You see, everywhere Jesus turns, he's surrounded by addicts. Including right now, in this room. Those of us addicted to controlling everything. People who want to determine all their outcomes. Religious addicts who need a list of rules like they need a fix. Control freaks everywhere Jesus looks as far as he can see. Now Peter is the one that Jesus needs to expose. Peter is still living in this place of if I work really hard, then you have to pay me for my work. So what Jesus is going to do is he's going to take that framework. If if you work really hard, then you need to get paid appropriately based on your work. He's going to start where Peter is which is where we all are. That's the framework we all use. And Jesus is going to turn that framework upside down by telling a story. Look, look at the next verse in chapter 20. For the kingdom of heaven is like a master of a house who went out early in the morning to hire laborers for his vineyard. After, greeting, after agreeing with the laborers for a denarius a day, that was a typical one day's wage, he sent them into his vineyard. And going out about the third hour, that would be nine o'clock in the morning, he saw others standing idle in the marketplace. Notice they're not doing anything. And to them, he said, you go into the vineyard too, and whatever is right, I'll give to you. So they went, going out again about the sixth hour, high noon, and the ninth hour, three o'clock in the afternoon, he did the same. And about the eleventh hour, five o'clock in the evening, he went out and found others standing. And he said to them, why do you stand here idle all day? They said to him, because no one has hired us. He said to them, well, you go into the vineyard too. And when evening came, the owner of the vineyard said to his foreman, call the laborers and pay them their wages, beginning with the last up to the first. And when those hired about the 11th hour came, each of them received a denarius, one day's wage, full day. Now, when those hired first came, 
they thought they would receive more. That's logical. But each of them also received a denarius. And on receiving it, they grumbled at the master of the house, saying, These last worked only an hour, and you've made them equal to us, who have borne the burden of the day and the scorching heat. But he replied to one of them, Friend, doing you no wrong. Did you not agree with me for a denarius? Take what belongs to you and go. I choose to give to this last worker as I give to you. Am I not allowed to do what I choose with what belongs to me? Or do you begrudge my generosity? So the last will be first and the first last. You know what that is? An absurd story. To make an absurd point. It's supposed to leave us feeling and saying the same thing that that story of the thief on the cross last week was supposed to leave us feeling and saying. And it's simply this. That's not what? Fair. It's not fair. And some of us, that bothers us. Because we've been working at this a lot longer and we deserve more. And they didn't deserve anything. We're like the workers who got hired earlier in the day and we begrudge the generosity of God. The God who would save someone while they're hanging on a cross. See, we're obsessed with getting what we feel like is owed to us. And when we feel like we've earned something and we see someone else freely receive the same thing, we get bitter and jealous and angry because we think we deserve better and they deserve worse. Remember what I said? My natural tendency to work for God's approval leads me to think too highly of myself and to think less of others. See, if we're going to transition into this loving your neighbor part of this series in these coming weeks, we got to get this right first. You will never truly be able to love your neighbor well as long as you believe that you worked to earn God's love and affection. Because what you'll do is you'll turn around and you'll demand that your neighbor work for yours. You'll get mad when you see someone less deserving than you receive God's grace. You see, what you believe has to motivate what you do, which means what we believe is really important. In order to truly love your neighbor, you have to know at the depth of your being how you are truly loved by God. Unconditionally, no strings attached, without fail, unmerited favor. You don't deserve it. And that's the point. A friend of mine sent me a quote this week from a guy named Walter Marshall. He says this, if you come into Christ's vineyard at the 11th hour of the day, you shall have your denarius as well as those who came in early in the morning. Because the reward is, give me the word, grace not merit. How about this? Could we just let God be God on his terms and rest in the fact that he sent his son for us. And instead of telling him how to be God and who he should extend grace to and who he shouldn't see, I love that phrase of Jesus. He says, am I not allowed to do what I choose with what belongs to me? sounds like a parent talking right there. Doesn't he? Am I not allowed to do this? You know what? A lot of us want to shout back. No, you're not. Actually, you know why Jesus because you're far too reckless with this thing called grace You have no idea what you're doing. You're giving it to all the wrong people I do a better job than you at this Jesus See here's the thing of all the people in the story that I think we're supposed to identify with in the story of the good samaritan I think the good samaritan is last on that list I do think we're supposed to identify with him the whole loving your neighbor thing. And we'll get there. I think we're supposed to identify with him. But I think before that, we're supposed to identify with this lawyer on this day who's trying to justify himself. I think, we're try- I think we have to identify with these religious guys we're going to meet in the next couple of weeks who walk around the guy who's laying in the ditch on the side of the road, dying and unable to help himself. But the person that we're supposed to identify with, first and foremost, primarily, the main takeaway from this story is the guy in the ditch. Because he's me. And he's you. See, 
when you know full well that apart from Jesus, you're as good as dead, it makes it really hard to judge someone else who's in the same position, does it not? I forget who said it first, but I love this quote. Grace is like water. It always flows to the lowest point. You can't outrun grace. You can't get too low for it. You can't be too bad for it. Years ago, I read this book by this author named Mark Buchanan, who says, maybe even more than Jesus' challenge to go and love your neighbor, Jesus' challenge to us is to go discover that we are the guy on the side of the road. He says it this way, go and do likewise. Go discover how desperate, naked, and left for dead you really are. Go discover that you are in fact broken and lying in a ditch. Go discover that there is no way to justify yourself. Go discover that you can't do a single thing to inherit eternal life. That unless someone has mercy on you, extravagant, sacrificial mercy. Yes, unless God happens by a jar brimming with oil in hand and pocket stuff with coins to pay the innkeeper. And he stops, well, you're as good as dead. Let's pray. Father, we come before you and uh, we thank you that you stopped. While we were still sinners, unable to help ourselves, improve ourselves, or do anything on our own behalf, you sent your one and only son to die for us. While we were in our worst moment of deepest sin, regret, and shame. God, oh, how we try to justify ourselves and prove ourselves to you. And all the while you're looking back at us going, do you remember who you were when I found you, when I called you, and when I gave you this amazing thing called grace? God, we want to celebrate you, the one who would give us this amazing thing called grace today. In Jesus' name, amen.